Hello, friends. You've got it tuned into the latest episode of Michigan Soccer Central. My name's Rob Kerr, host of this podcast, your source for soccer information and updates here in the Great Lakes State. Uh, first weekend of October, busy weekend of soccer in our rear view mirror, as well as uh, looking ahead uh, through the week into the next weekend to uh, help guide me through this and uh, to chit-chat a little bit about uh, soccer. I am lucky to be joined by editor of this program and producer on 97.1 The Ticket here in Metro Detroit. Thank you, Jenny Hajnaki, for joining me today. Let's let's be clear. You're guiding me through it. I'm just here helping to add to your discussion. You're the leader of this show. I just do what you tell me to do. Fair enough, fair enough. Usually uh, uh, behind the scenes, but very much uh, part of the uh, sports landscape here in Michigan. We've got two great feature interviews today. Uh, we're going to talk about NISA and uh, grassroots coverage with uh, protagonist Dan Vaughn. And then we are going to get another conversation with an outstanding Michigan-based coach. We have Andy Wagstaff on the program today. I'm going to line up a couple um, outstanding uh, Michigan soccer updates here. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out Kevin Hubble. Uh, he is a senior soccer player at Benzie High School, and he broke the USA high school record for scoring in high school by netting 16 times last week versus Kingsley High School. The uh, previous record was 14 set in 2002. The Michigan record was 10 goals. Uh, young Kevin Hubble scored eight goals in 10 minutes and then ended up with 16 in just 31 minutes of play outstanding he is uh closing in on the all-time state record um of first season scoring he was already in the um record books as the third longest streak of hat tricks uh where <laughs> during this season uh kevin hubble scored eight consecutive hat tricks so um he is on the odp in the midwest and is going to be trying for the national team soon so remember the name kevin hubble and, um, wow, uh, they mercyed him at halftime and, uh, that blew the, uh, <laughs> the Slack chat away when we, when we saw that pop up on the, uh, Michigan soccer central feed, 16 goals in 31 minutes of play. What do you think about that, Jenny? Um, that's, that's really impressive. Uh, I, I don't think I've, I, like, I mean, I've, I haven't played soccer as long as most of these kids, but I don't think I've scored 16 goals in like my entire life. And that includes probably pickup soccer. So uh, I, I, that's, that's really impressive. I'm going to really look forward to watching this kid's development, and I hope he really goes somewhere and adds another impressive name to the list of impressive soccer names to come out of this state. Yeah, uh, definitely keep an eye on him. To add a little bit of grain of salt, their opponents had conceded at least seven in every game this season, but to score, I wasn't bring that up. <laughs> but to score, but to score like a goal every two minutes, no matter the level, is a remarkable feat. No matter what. Um, looking ahead, or actually looking back, University of Michigan got a big win on Friday night over a perennial Big Ten powerhouse, Indiana. 
And uh, in the theme of in-state rivalries, uh, which is uh, kind of the theme for the week, University of Michigan uh, tonight, Tuesday night, we were recording before it kicks off in Ann Arbor, U of M versus the Spartans soccer. It's going to be a blue out. So that should be an exciting night of college soccer in our Ann Arbor. It'll be a, uh, a soggy one, no doubt. Continuing uh, in college soccer, Western Michigan comes east to play Oakland University midweek and then uh, will face the Spartans next week. So lots of interstate collegiate matchups. Uh, staying with in-state rivalries, we're going to talk about this game uh, a little bit more with Dan Vaughn later in the show but a big game in the NISA ranks here in Michigan. Detroit City FC will welcome the Michigan Stars to Keyworth on Saturday. Detroit City FC in first, but uh, held to a nil-nil draw over the weekend. Stars were on an unbeaten streak, but were felled in a very, very wet and rainy game over the weekend. So their press to uh, make the game a battle at the top didn't quite pan out how we hoped, but uh, the City versus uh, Romeo-based Stars will be a compelling matchup nonetheless. I'm looking forward to that. Are you going down to that one, Jenny? I wish I could. I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be watching it either on a stream or on TV, uh, but I I wish I could be down at Keyworth for that one because not only is that like, like a matchup of two of the the top teams in NISA here in the fall season, but it's it's kind of a, a historic as far as we go with Detroit City anyway, historic kind of rivalry type game where you have this this other much smaller club. I think I think Detroit City's fans take it a little stronger than Michigan Stars fans, but it's still one of those games that the, the Northern Guard really gets up for, and it has kind of that extra, you know, Derby Day atmosphere to kind of bring the the British slang into it, and it, it it's always a fun game to go to when these two teams meet. So if you do have a chance to get down to Keyworth, make sure you do it for this one because it's going to be a lot of fun. The Northern Guard's going to be in full voice. I fully expect the Detroit City FC win because I fully expect them to win every single game they play these days, but they'll put on a great show for you. And that's not just being on, talking about on the pitch. That's talking about the fans in the stands, too. It's going to be a wonderful atmosphere down there at Keyworth on Saturday afternoon. I imagine uh, they will bust out some of their uh, No Stars TIFO down uh, this weekend. Oh, yeah. Uh, those Definitely. ones... Uh... Make me chuckle, uh, to put it lightly. Um, yeah, I am going to do whatever I can to get down there. Um, should be an exciting match. We don't really get, uh, you know, to, 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 to go so long without any professional teams in the state and then to have two pop up at the same time. And uh, they're playing each other. So a unique event um, come Saturday afternoon, a uh, rare fall uh, four o'clock start, I believe. Uh, congratulations. Yep, Go ahead. It, it is a four o'clock kickoff. Yep, four o'clock kickoff. It gets dark and cold and um, adjusting to the uh, maybe change in demographics in the fall um, and weather, of course. It, it's getting dark and dreary uh, here in Michigan. So do you know why uh, specifically? I'm taking uh, educated guesses as to why they're going to four o'clock games. 
as as far as I'm aware, your educated guess is correct. It has to do with the the chillier temperatures mostly because it gets it gets cold when the sun goes down here in the fall, and uh, you kick off that game at four o'clock, have the sun up a little bit, a little more comfortable for the fans out there. Time for the We Are Soccer Michigan Soccer Central Team of the Week. Congratulations to Lauren Lawrence Tech University men's side for winning this week's. We are Soccer, Michigan Soccer Central Team of the Week for their outstanding play over the last week. They've had a great season there in Southfield. If you, listener, witness or know of a team doing outstanding work, had an outstanding outing this weekend, or did something remarkable in the community, send a DM to Michigan Soccer Central or the We Are, so- we are Soccer accounts. And your name will get thrown into the chat and will be uh, debated by uh, We Are Soccer members and Michigan Soccer Central crew. And will be presented across social medias as well as on the show that airs on the Woodward Sports Network on Saturday mornings. Okay, Jenny, um, we got a couple great interviews lined up. They touch on a couple things I mean, Andy Wagstaff's going to start us off uh, a litany of awards, and I have really gotten into I've listened to more coaches speak in the last couple of months than um, really I ever have. Man, when you hear somebody who has attained such success uh, speak in motivational terms, uh, I mean, I'm recording in the closet under the stairs and I get kind of pumped up. Yeah, it's, I mean, just all, all the coaches I've listened to. I wasn't directly talking to them, but I was kind of the, you know, the the hidden listener to your conversations for all of these. And it's like I have learned so much about the youth system, coaching in general, and how uh, how the American soccer system more generally and more specifically here in Michigan has improved over the last few years. And I think this Andy Wagstaff interview is a perfect example of that, just with how involved he is with, uh, with the, the well, first the Flint city bucks. And then with uh, the LFC Academy here around town, it's just, it's amazing. And then we're going to move then to Dan Vaughn, who is uh lead man at protagonist who um, gives us all puts in an incredible amount of sweat equity into uh, covering grassroots soccer and has a big focus on NISA, the league that Detroit City FC and the Michigan Stars compete in. And he touches on both um, just coverage of grassroots soccer in general and um, makes a note of his favorite thing has been like the people that become the connective tissue. Like we love the game. It's a it's a focus, but it's the people along the way. And that's a part of the reason what I had you on the show today was because you are part of that connective tissue with soccer, Jenny. When I moved from Chicago, I moved back to Detroit not knowing a darn thing about Michigan soccer about five years ago. And we coincidentally had uh, a non-related job, and uh, you were plugged into uh, American soccer right here in Metro Detroit, and uh, you kind of welcomed me into the fold and set me on my course to where we are going right now. Yeah, and I'm the type of person like soccer is a passion of mine. 
And anytime I meet somebody else who kind of shares that passion, I kind of develop that instant connection and I want to get to know them a little more. And that's kind of what happened with you. And you told me about your interest in writing and content creation and all that. I happened to be writing for a website called Last Word on Soccer at the time. And I got you involved with them. I shortly thereafter moved on to a SBI soccer and it it, just, it was so nice to find someone else who had that interest, who wanted to develop that connection in not just the the national game and uh, the European game, of course, but also locally. And uh, we could uh, we could discuss, you know, Detroit City FC and then eventually Oakland County FC. And uh, you kind of maintained your involvement a little more where I've, I've been more of a passive observer. But again, it's just it's it's nice to share interests like that with people and really kind of t- kind of be able to get involved with this podcast well, is really doing a great job of keeping me into the in the loop as well as other life responsibilities have taken my creative instincts away you uh, will hear us Jenny and myself at the end we will react and add a couple more notes but first Andy Wagstaff followed by Dan Vaughn Welcome back, listeners. This is Robert Kerr for Michigan Soccer Central. We continue now with our uh, conversations with Michigan-based coaches. Our next guest, I'm very excited, has seen a success at a number of levels here in the Great Lakes State. Spanning back to the late 90s, he's coached both boys and girls, high school, club, college, as well as USL League 2. He holds a USS F National A license as well as an A and B license from UEFA. Um, glad to bring on uh, Coach Andy Wagstaff. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate you uh, inviting me onto your show. I'm excited. Oh, uh, not only are you the head coach of uh, the Flint City Bucks, but you are the owner and uh, president of Liverpool Football Club here in Michigan. Uh, just to start off. Um, how do you do all that at the same time? And uh, what does your day-to-day look like now here in the fall? Yeah, um, well, I don't know how I do that on a daily basis, but I'll, uh, I'll, give, you, I'll give you my best summary of, um, of what my sort of d- typical day and week looks like now. It's changed considerably over the years. I, you know, I've always prided myself on, on uh, being a, originally a, a player of the game and then a coach of the game. And now I'm more of a... I would say manager of, of staff and uh, operator of the business because of uh, the, the substantial growth that we've had over the last several years. And I, and I, I like it. It's always um, a new challenge. Um, so generally, yeah, I, I, you know, Liverpool, Michigan was, uh, was born um, back in 2016. And um, at that point I was still coaching collegiately um, at Saginaw Valley State University I was the head coach there. And uh, we decided to uh, move from our original brand of Force Football Club into becoming Liverpool, Michigan. And um, all of a sudden, I realized the the uh, impact of that brand uh, of Liverpool and the growth has been, like I said, substantial. So my, my day-to-day now and, and uh, over the last year or two has been, uh, again, just making sure the club is operating on all cylinders, um, managing the different directors at the different various locations that we have we call them sites so we have site directors at at um, six uh, total locations and 
I'd manage that team uh, mostly, you know, daily or every other day, and um, and then all of the other staff that work, you know, under their umbrella. So I guess tell me a little bit more. How did that? Uh, uh, what did that do to your club? You said uh, you're a director of Bloomfield Force, and then mm-hmm. what, I guess how did you? How did that opportunity to I guess extend the the Liverpool brand and create your new academy from something that already exists like how was that process and how did you come to that uh decision and change yeah yeah i mean it was it was a long time coming really it was sort of something that was always in the back of our mind um as the you know as as leaders of, of bloomfield force originally um you know we always felt like you know maybe there was a, a way that we could i wouldn't say improve our brand because we were very proud of what force Football Club or Bloomfield Force, we were very proud of that brand. It was just sort of making a mark and becoming a little bit more uh, of a Michigan brand is what is what we want and regional brand is what we wanted to achieve. So um, going back a long time ago, um, you know, I'd say early 90s was when I began as the director of coaching for Bloomfield Force and a very community-based club and was very proud to to, to coach uh, in the community and, and bring some excellent players through the ranks over the years with me and my staff. And um, again, we were very proud of who we were, and but we, we were kind of, um, you know, a, a little bit smaller than what we would have liked and didn't quite have the depth um, with some of the age groups that we were hoping for. And, um, you know, I, I had thought about for a number of years about partnering with, you know, a an international brand. And we've been approached by, other brands like Everton and Celtic and uh, Sampdoria from Italy and West Ham United and uh, Bayern Munich all through kind of third party affiliations. And um, although those clubs are all great clubs, I, not none of them appealed to me like Liverpool did. And that that's based on the fact that uh, I've, I've been a Liverpool fan for, for a long time. And when I was in sort of my early twenties, which is some years ago now, but um, we were, or I was going back and forth between England and America. I was um, living in in the U.S. for sort of half the year and and um, and running the Bloomfield Force um, and playing actually at the time for uh, Detroit Neon, who were an indoor professional team back in the day. And so I was kind of going back and forth and spending half the year in England. Uh, I was going to uh, university at Liverpool. John Moore's doing a master's in sports psychology, and during that time, I was offered a a coaching position um, at Liverpool Football Club, and it, it was kind of ironic how it all uh, uh, transpired. I was I was working at Bolton Wanderers in their academy, coaching their under tens, and um, I was also going to John Moore's University. And any, anyway, I got offered the opportunity to go on the UA for B license over at the academy in Kirby at Liverpool, and I was the only non-Liverpool coach that got on the on the course and. By the end of the week, I'd, I'd become good friends with a number of the staff there, and and inevitably, because of that connection, I I was fortunate to get offered a job at Liverpool. So, over the next sort of three or four years, I continued that trend of spending half the year in America, half the year in England, and my time in England was spent primarily uh, working part time with Liverpool. Um, so I got to know a lot of people and uh, stayed in contact with with those people uh, for many years. So back in. 2015, 16, myself and my leaders uh, of my club, which are uh, at, at the time and still are, um, Kevin Garner and Danny Price and Karen Parker, and we all, you know, uh, Simone Omakanda, we all we all sat and tried to figure out 
you know, what direction we wanted to head into as a club. And we kind of set a target of uh, in, in getting the best brand, the, the best facilities and the best coaches. Um, then was there were the three sort of pillars that we wanted to sort of achieve as a club. And um, we managed to get, you know, some uh, training time and, and uh, home base at, at Ultimate Soccer Arenas, which is now UWM uh, Sports Arena, was still there. Um, so we, we managed to get the, get the facilities locked down to the point where they were top class. The coaches, we just continued to recruit, you know, the, the most highest licensed coaches and, and the best people we could find. And I'm very proud of the staff that we have in at LFC Michigan now with, with a, an abundance of top level coaches. And then the brand was the only thing that we were kind of stuck on. So um, in 2015, I think going into 16, um, Jurgen Klinsmann had kind of brought in the new um separation of teams via the the birth year so as you as you probably remember it was you know cal- uh, school year uh, which would separate teams from u11 u12 u13 well in, in in 2016 he changed it to birth year so we felt that that was sort of a, a segue into us making a move um so i just simply reached out to liverpool um i found out that a friend of mine had, had, had got a head of football position a guy called nick marshall um, at Liverpool, I reached out to Nick and congratulated him on the job, and and then I said, "Hey, by the way, you know, would would there be any interest in partnering with with uh, my club and helping us rebrand and become part of Liverpool?" So that's kind of where it all started, and you know, within sort of four or five months of that phone call, uh, we were launching, you know, Liverpool, Michigan, and um saying a, a fond farewell to force we were very proud of that of that brand but we um we were very excited to get into to the liverpool michigan uh brand a lot to chew on there uh thank you for that answer <laughs> i got uh i'm trying to think of where to go from here because you gave me a lot to chew on there um so you wanted to to to, to become a bigger entity and you've uh made the connection with liverpool Mm-hmm. So does that mean there's a great deal of interest? Um, you, you listed all those other teams that you were contacted over the years, third party wise. Mm-hmm. Is that um, European, um, you know, global brand type of teams? Are they interested in extending the brand or do they really want to mine? Like, do they consider Michigan a talent rich place? I think, I think both, but I think that the, the MO um, of Liverpool is to, to, create more brand awareness um to to make liverpool football club a household name and i and i would you know i would i'd be remiss not mentioning the fact that you know one of the main reasons why we chose liverpool you know in addition to me supporting them was you know the very foundation of how liverpool football club operates on and off the field was very significant for us and we felt we had a parallel kind of universe i guess um although detroit michigan or you know, in particular, sort of Bloomfield, Pontiac area, Auburn Hills area, um, you know, has got such a hardworking mentality and, um, you know, driven to succeed mentality. And we felt like uh, that worked very well with with the values of, of Liverpool Football Club. And um, so we felt like it, it it fit who we were and, and, and where we wanted to go very well, which is why we turned down the other opportunities that we had. And it really wasn't, you know, a commercial deal for us. It was, it was a philosophical and um, sort of 
mission and direction based decision. Um, again, we've you know I, I remember making this comment when when we became Liverpool was I feel like now um, the light has shone a little bit uh, brighter on the people that were already the foundation of the club beforehand, and we just didn't quite have the brand awareness with Bloomfield Force that we we kind of wanted. Uh, we always want to connect and continue to connect with the community of Bloomfield and the communities of Pontiac and Auburn Hills and all the other areas. But we wanted also to have, you know, a structure within the club that that invited the the, the strongest players from from uh, Southeast Michigan to, to be part of our club. Uh, but always with a goal of making this an experience for the families that was, you know, about about life skills, about being teammates, about understanding what it's like to win and lose and and just and just living by values and and, and basically the Liverpool way um, and that you know the ambition ambition commitment dignity and unity are the four values that we stand by and that was that was driven by you know Liverpool's uh, direction several years ago and it, and, it, and it just we felt like it fit perfectly with who we who we were and who we are. You noted um, earlier on about the the, the major growth that you've seen since the uh, the Liverpool branding. Um, I guess how many uh, teams are you fielding now, and uh, what age groups? Yeah, we we uh, <clears throat> you know from a, um, a a growth perspective, we were back in back in two thousand sixteen. We had sort of one site that was primarily located at, at uh, Ultimate Soccer Arenas and Bloomfield Hills Fields, different locations around Bloomfield. Uh, we also had a small site that had opened up in Ferndale. And um, so collectively, we're, we were about five, maybe 500 kids, maybe a little bit less uh, between those two sites. And then since then, we've grown to, um, I think the latest is we're, we're in and around 1,750 is the, the amount that we're at now as far as players that are playing travel for us. So basically U7 to U19. Um, and, you know, underneath that, you know, before U7, we have, you know, a, a, a lot of players that, that enter into like six-week cycles with us uh, throughout the different sites. So uh, not only did we, uh, obviously we've grown in a lot of players and, and volume, but we we added different sites. So we we had the Pontiac site, which is uh, Pontiac Bloomfield, which is now called Central, um, which is where we have our headquarters offices and that kind of thing. And then Ferndale, we continued with Ferndale. And then we added um, North of Oakland, which is Clarkston, um, which is run by Ian Jones and Damian Huffer. And then we've got um, Ann Arbor, uh, which was a site that was started by Lee Hudson and, and now is run by... Um, University of Michigan's Director of Operations, Justin Maker. Um, we also added uh, Canada. We went over the border and added Windsor, which is run by Roberto Maza and Egidio Mosca. And then uh, we recently added uh, Heartland, which is actually my neck of the woods. I, I live in the community and um, the Heartland United are the local uh, travel rec club. And they approached me back in sort of the tail end of last year and asked if we would be willing to bring Liverpool in and, and we did. And so we're, we're there now. And, and that site is run by um, Jamie Black and, and uh, Dan Price. Incredible. So how many locations was that that you listed? Mm. We're at six locations now. Um, so and we, we have got a partnership with 
um, a club in Illinois um, that in, in the area of Barrington, which is another another site that we could say that we're partners with. Um, but we just have a small um, consulting relationship with 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 that site right now. But they essentially have the the licensing to grow in in Illinois, and uh, they opened up during the pandemic, and and that they're just gradually um, you know growing, and we're part of that as well as far as a consultancy uh, basis is concerned. So it's a, it's all very good. It's exciting. It's it's a lot of work, um, but it's something we enjoy daily and. We just, I think more than anything now, we want to just sort of, you know, sort of consolidate where we are um, because we've grown dramatically with the same amount of people running the whole business. Um, obviously, we've added more and more people over the years, but the, the, the people that were here from the beginning are still here. And now we just want to make sure that we do the best job that we can for all our players and all our families and, and make sure we treat our staff with the utmost respect. Um. Switching gears a little bit, um, it sounds like you're doing a, a lot of management, a lot of administrative work. Um, what uh, are you coaching any teams right now? You know, I'm not coaching any teams um, within within Liverpool. Just you know, purely based on the fact that I need to be more accessible to all of the different sites now, and to be able to work with the different leaders of all the sites. So you know, we, we felt, or I felt that spending time with with one group in one location was probably a little bit unfair to to um the rest of of the sites and the rest of the directors that i've that i've got to work with and um so i'm i'm on hold on that one right now and and i'm sure i will return at some point to to coaching teams within the club but i i get my coaching fix from from the flint city books which is a usl um league two team and um I've been fortunate enough to have been working for them for on and off for a number of years. And that's where I get my, you know, get my coaching fix from and, and thoroughly enjoy it. We'll come back and talk more bucks in a little bit, but I wanted to ask you uh, at the top um, when I introduced you, I listed off uh, all the different levels, like you boys, girls, high school, club, college, and USL. Um, but I, the list was so long that I didn't include most of all those stops ended up in uh, in championships and whatnot um, and accolades. Mm -hmm. What do you credit? What what have you done that sets you apart to uh, to find such success over the last 20 plus years? Oof, um, I don't know. I, I, it would be tough to pinpoint any one thing. I think that um, probably drive and resilience because. I think people look at accolades and they look at awards and they look at people's resumes and, and they go, oh, you know, it's like, it's kind of like it was just, you know, the, the, the time it took to type it out or write it out was how long it took to achieve it. And it's, it, that's not the case. It takes years and years of, of going through the ups and downs, you know, wins and losses as a coach, um, you know, players that you just didn't quite get the best out of and you try to figure out why, you know, you try to, put yourself in their shoes and wonder why you weren't able to connect with them the way that you wanted to. And, and then on, on the, on the flip side, the, 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 the good moments, the times when, you know, you achieve the success that you hope to, to, to achieve and the targets that you set for your teams, you know, I've just been very, very fortunate to have had like not only incredible players that I've coached for so many years now, but always managed to surround myself with really good assistant coaches um, who don't just sit there like a nodding dog and, and tell me exactly what they think I want to hear. They'll, they'll tell me straight what they think about something. And 
it makes me think, you know, deep and, and more critical about what I'm doing as a coach and what I'm doing as a leader. So, um, you know, it, it, it started out with a drive to be a professional player and be the best I could be. And when eventually, inevitably, those doors either close or your body just doesn't allow you to be able to do that at that level anymore, you kind of look at the next, you know, the next fix and what's going to make you um, challenged to the point of where it becomes an obsession. So, I mean, that's what I would say for many, many years, I was running, you know, a business, you know, even though I was only young, but I was always trying to be open-minded about becoming the best coach that I can uh, or I could be. And side by side with that drive, I was willing to put myself out there and do the coaching licenses, which take many years. They take a lot, they, they cost a lot of money um, and they take a lot of courage because it's not easy to put yourself, you know, out there in front of people that you respect and you know it, you know it's kind of like singing on stage you know it's it's a nerve-wracking moment for you um but you've got to put yourself out there to, to to challenge yourself and come out of your comfort zone it is so easy to to get into your comfort zone and rely upon what you've done well over the years and just think that it continues to to get you success but that's just a lazy approach in my opinion you should always be looking at ways to reinvent yourself and be open-minded about new ideas and new opinions uh, to shape who you are as a coach. So you said drive, obsession, and willingness to continue to learn the highlights of uh, what you've done so far? Yeah, and I think, I think um, you know, maybe resilience, you know, um, just just being able to take the, the knocks and the ups and downs, which – Again, I think when people are looking at accolades and awards, they, they, they just think it's, it's, it, it just happens so easy. And it didn't. It takes a lot of failure um, before you can, you, can, you, know, you can get the points of, of where you succeed. And, and when you do, whether, that, whether succeeding means winning the championship at whatever level or achieving the license at whatever level or your team's leaving you at, you know, the, when they graduate from you or you, you let them go to another coach and, and the, the time that those families spend writing your notes and cards and gifts and, um, you know, reaching out and saying, you know, how thankful they are for that impact that, you, that you've had on, on their lives is, is something that, you know, you can't replace. Over um, the course of your career so far, what was the, like the stop or the moment where um you thought that you, you were onto something this could be what you could do for the continuation of your career? Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great question. Um, probably in my sort of early 20s, um, I, was, I was getting done with, with Oakland University and I was playing there. So I was a, a four-year four -year player at Oakland University under Gary Parsons, Steve Sargent, uh, Morris Lupinek, just a lot of big Michigan names. Um, and... You know, I, I realized that um, I could I could coach because I I went to cover for a, a roommate of mine who was very busy with uh, engineering school, and he and he said, "Hey, listen, I'm I'm coaching this team in Bloomfield. Would you would you mind covering for me? I, I'm just so busy." And I said, "Okay." So I went and did that a few times, and the the the, the gentlemen that were running the club at the time. 
um, came to me and said, "Hey, well, you know, you do you do a really good job with these kids. Would you would you like to do a bit more?" And I said, "Yeah, you know, of course." And I found myself just really, really loving coaching. So it almost, you know, sort of early twenties, maybe twenty two, twenty three. I realized that, you know, that the playing career was just a constant setback. It like it never ended. It was like every time that you it felt like you'd achieved something, you 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 know, and you, you're hoping to get that pro contract or whatever it might be, you just get some kind of setback, and it was it was tough. And even achieving a pro contract, which I did at you know twenty. 23 years of age, 24 years of age, when I signed for Detroit Neon, it was a special moment for me, but it wasn't something that I could sit back and go, right, I, you know, I've made it now, I'm going to be making all this money and I'm going to be financially secure for the next 10 years without worrying about having to do anything else. I can just play professionally. That wasn't really a reality um, back then, you know, and it, 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 you can you can argue that it really isn't now either, unless you're in the big leagues. Um so I realized that coaching for me was something that I really enjoyed. I, I loved, I loved making players, you know, trying to help make make players better, trying to get them the light bulb to switch on for the, for them, where they realized that they were good at something and how they could go away and improve on it. And then when all those individual pieces come together within your team and you start winning games in a manner that you're proud of, you know, you're like, wow, you know, we we played with class, we played with integrity, we played a great brand of soccer that we're all excited to watch, then that was when I was like, okay, well, I'm, this seems to be something that I'm okay at. So I think maybe I'll make a career out of this. <laughs> what age, um, just out of your own uh, coaching experience, which age do you feel like you had the most impact at? Hmm. I think it changes with your age as a, as a, as a person. Like I, I realized when I was, I would say probably 21, 22 years of age that I, that I was okay at coaching. And I realized that for me to make a major impact and create essentially a club, which is what my job was with Blingfield Force back then, was to try to build the travel club. I realized that um, the way to really change it was to, to impact the youngest age groups. So I continued to coach the older age groups and and may, and try to give them the, the best experience I could give them, but I created a number of different development programs in Bloomfield Hills for sort of six, maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine year olds, and I created back then what I called, you know, it's kind of been used since, but you know, twenty five, twenty eight, twenty nine years ago, I called it the Center of Excellence, um, and it was just a basically a a summer program that I ran uh, for, a, for a lot of recreational kids in Bloomfield. And then at the end of the summer, I invited them back to be part of an indoor league team that, that would train and play over at Square Lake Racquet Club back in, back in the day. And that was where my team started. So at the time, I put all my energy and time into developing these young girls, young boys. Um, and I was only in my early 20s, so I really kind of uh, was attached to the, to the younger kids. It was easy for me with because you just need you need a lot of energy, right, for the younger kids. So, so now as the years go by, I'm getting a little bit older. Like I, I, I now resonate probably more so with the, you know, I would say anything, any, any age from like 15 and above. But I really sort of feel challenged and I excited to coach, you know, the oldest age group of men or the oldest age group of of women, whether it be 
collegiately, you know, semi-professionally or, or, um, or professionally. That's where I aspire to, to sort of be at. Uh, going back to your playing career a little bit, I want to connect uh, the old to the new here a little bit. Did your playing career uh, cross paths with um, Brian the Goose Finnerty? It, it did, yeah, um, yeah. I know, I know Goose, and um, what a player he was, what a goalkeeper he was. I I played for one year with the Detroit Rockers down at Joe Louis Arena, and um, I know they were at the Cobo Arena for a while, but we were at the Joe Louis Arena when I played there. <clears throat> and uh, at the time, the, the head coach was Pat Omar Hedick, uh, who was a brilliant player. He was coming to the end of his career at that point, but he was still really good. And he was the head coach, but Goose was our standout goalkeeper. Um, I know he, he'd won it all with, with the Rockers prior to me arriving. Uh, but I know Goose has done very well for himself in his personal life. He's, a, he's an entrepreneur and um, his son uh, plays at the University of Michigan, Owen. A very talented player, and um, yeah, so I know I know Goose from. I haven't seen him for quite a while, but yeah, we played together. Because I I still recall he made a, a visit to my Canton soccer team when I was a little kid, and mm -hmm. uh, had some sort of a a, a goalie program or just a, an appearance to promote the team, and that stuck with me for uh, you know thirty years now. Um, with, and obviously at that point, soccer had a, a smaller footprint than it does now. And, um, Goose's son, you know, he's at university of Michigan. He made a couple appearances, uh, with Detroit city FC with just one player appearance. I recall that now what impact do all these new teams, the summer league teams, what do you think? Have you seen an impact on the younger kids from the rise of, um, these, uh, elite amateur sides? Oh yeah, I mean, I I think that it's it's um, growing. It continues to grow, and I think it finally gives gives these young men and young women some role models to to aspire to to um, you know be like as they get older. Um, but it also gives them a pathway now. You know, where when I think back to you know the the, the mid nineties when I was here as a player. Um, you know, obviously leaving leaving home, leaving England to come play over here was was a big, you know, was a big um, step for me and my family and uh, really thoroughly enjoyed playing at Oakland, but I desperately wanted to play more, longer. I wanted to play for more years. And there really wasn't that infrastructure outside of playing in the Indoor Pro League. It was almost impossible to get into the MLS. Um, the books were starting around about that time, but the books were primarily for the lads that were still in college. So anyone that was graduating, there was almost like, it was almost like immediately, like you either make it as a pro in the indoor league or you're, you're playing on the, you know, the local, you know, local Michigan amateur league, which, you know, it certainly was enjoyable playing in those leagues. Um, but it wouldn't, it, it, it wouldn't compare in my opinion to the, you know, the, the, the Flint city books and the, and the DCFCs and the other, you know, the other top clubs that are out there, even in the levels that I would say are below the the, D, the DCFCs and the Flint City Bucks, which would be, you know, your UPSL level, um, which still is, is a very competitive level. You know, we've just finished playing some of those teams like into Detroit and Rebels and uh, Detroit United and Detroit Union. And, and um, it, you know, they're good teams. So I think it's it's having a massive impact on the youth. Um they can play all the way up until the 30s and beyond. And um, 
there's finally an infrastructure that allows the, a choice to play soccer is something that you can play now here in Michigan for until you're until you can't really get about the field anymore. Now that we've brought up uh, the Flint City Bucks, you are the uh, head coach of that team, the most successful uh, elite amateur side, the highest level uh, for a long time here in the state. Um, and you've been associated with the team. You've had positions uh, at the Bucks on and off, like you said, for a while. What does it mean to you to be the head coach? And how's that journey been so far since 2020 when you took the job? Yeah, it's been it's been good. I, I um, you know, I I was I was the assistant coach back in 2010 with Gary Parsons, um, and then again in 2013 with Demir Muftari, who's a close friend of mine and a spectacular coach. Um, and then Demir and I were were well, he was the head coach in 2019, and I I assist I assisted him as the associate head coach. We always knew that the plan was maybe. Demir was going to do one more year and then I was going to take over and that was kind of pre-planned and um, sure enough we managed to win it in 2019 in typical Demir Muftari fashion um, and um, it's you know taking over was obviously huge shoes to fill and I, I don't I wouldn't kid myself that I'm ever trying to fill those shoes I think he stands alone as one of the one of the most successful coaches out there without a doubt and um, I wanted to kind of put my you know, stamp my, um, I guess, blueprint on the program. And, um, you know, it's been, it, it was a little bit stifled with, with, with COVID, like everything has been for everyone. Um, so my first year was meant to be, um, you know, the 2020, but we just ended up doing some exhibition games instead because of, we weren't able to get out there and, and play a normal season. So my first year was, was back in May. Um, Albeit a little bit odd that you know we're coming out of a, a coming out of COVID and still quite a few restrictions and quite a, a different vibe to the to the season. I still thoroughly enjoyed it and um, very proud to you know even be in the running for a selection to be a head coach of uh, such a storied and uh, historic uh, club. So I'm very very uh, very proud of that position that I have and thoroughly enjoy it. As I mentioned, the Michigan uh, soccer landscape uh, is constantly evolving. More and more teams keep on coming in. And uh, your Bucks play in the USL League 2, which is a rebranded version of the, the PDL, the Pro Development League. And for uh, quite a while, the, the Bucks were Michigan's uh, team in that league. And then now this year in uh, the USL League 2 in the uh, was it the Great Lakes Conference, um, mm -hmm. There was what the Bucks, Oakland County FC, um, Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo, Grand Rapids, mm -hmm. and the you know there was supposed to be Ann Arbor, um, but they right. didn't play this year. So so what does that do to the Bucks um, having uh, a lot more company at that le level? Yeah, I mean again it it kind of ties into your point that you made earlier, Robert, about like you know the impact of of these sort of next level experiences and next level teams that are actually something that our local players can aspire to achieve now is is has been extremely impactful and it's evident by the fact that you know the different locations throughout Michigan have decided to to jump in with a with a team um, and represent 
their their area and their location with with a um, a USL League Two team. So you know it was a it was a fun season. We we had you know the pool of players that were available for from Michigan became a little bit smaller because you know now you've got you know um, Ann Arbor and and uh, Grand Rapids and well obviously Ann Arbor weren't in the league last year but you got Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo and Oakland County all really essentially going after the you know the same players in many regards um, so then obviously it made a lot of sense for players that live closer to a USL League Two team to just stay w- with them rather than having to to go further afield and maybe play for us or or whatever but um so it's been good though but it, it it's been very good from a travel perspective it's been good from a rivalry perspective because you know I think we've always kind of had this rivalry rivalry with uh, Cincinnati uh, they're now called Kings Hammer but you know I think the local derbies have have taken that away now we you know you've got an Oakland County derby you've got Grand Rapids you've got you've got a Kalamazoo and uh, they were all they were all big games, you know. We we you know we we found them very 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 tough to play against, and there was a little bit of more of your, you know, almost similar to like your collegiate season, where like a Michigan or play a Michigan State or a Western Michigan or whatever. It was a bit more like that because of the the uh, amount of Michigan based players that were in the in the teams. Yes, it was uh, quite a season. Have you ever seen a division or a season with? Uh, quite so many late goals. It seemed like almost every single game from the top to the bottom of the division came down to a last minute moment. It seemed like it, it was so dramatic. It was, it was insane. Um, I'm not sure why I'm not sure why the, the games ended the way they did. And, you know, can you can get scientific and psychological and physiological about it and start thinking, well, maybe it was due to COVID and maybe players not as fit and, mistakes happening late in games and all that kind of stuff and you could also say that you know the resilience and mindset of never say die like I'm going to keep going to the end you know because of what we've been through so who who knows what it was linked to all, all I know was it was a fun fun season and you know Kalamazoo came in and were, were outstanding um, extremely well coached by Shane Lyons and they had their own identity and you know, we had a proper good game against them, and uh, you know there was quite a bit of drama in that game. And but at the end of the day, they they, they had a very very good showing. Um, and then you know Grand Rapids beat us at, at our place in a in a big game where we led, and they came back and you know took over and beat us. And and again, it was probably a game that we were on paper expected to win, but it it, it just doesn't pan out that way. Um, and again, another very well coached team, and and. Um, you know, it was uh, it was a it was a really fun season with a lot of late winners and a lot of drama. <laughs> More drama than uh, my mm-hmm. heart could handle at certain mm-hmm. moments. Mm-hmm. Um, more of a structural question: with you having seen um, the, how how soccer and development works overseas, and then um, multiple decades here in Michigan, and you've seen a lot of changes. One thing I'm a little bit, obviously I'm a bit of an outsider and you've been involved in the inner workings of it. Um, I get frustrated a little bit with all the different levels, the scheduling, like high schoolers and college, Mm -hmm. they have such a condensed season and Mm -hmm. they're often playing games with two days apart or three games in a week. And even we even see that in the USL too, where the, the, like the last weeks in June and then the beginning of 
July, there was two, three games a week. How, what, what do you think could be done big picture wise to where we could get the, 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 the maximum performance and development? Because even as from a, a, a lay like myself, I, I can't believe that playing all those games without training in between or rest time in between, that doesn't seem like it's the best way to develop and see the best product. Like what do we do about that moving forward? Right. I mean, again, it might just come back to just the, the, I guess, you know, when you, when you compare this to let's say Liverpool Academy and, or any, you know, uh, grassroots level, organization in in europe not just not just england there there is more there is certainly more understanding and that's not me saying that we don't get it here it's me saying that there's more there's more history there with dealing with player development that you, there is more onus on periodization and understanding that there's that the, the, the wear and tear on your body from playing a game of soccer is equally as as hard as it as it would be to play a game of high school football, for example, or collegiate football. And you don't see collegiate football or, or even high school football playing more than one game a, a week, right? I mean, you you know, it's Friday Friday night lights is the the culture here with the, and it's an exciting culture with with the football and the high schools. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if if there's a real down to the core understanding of of the actual physical output that players put into high level games um to to for the for the governing bodies to come together and say we can't stand by this you know everything being about the student athlete or everything being about the, the you know the health and safety of our, our young men and women and then make them play multiple amounts of games in a really super short period of time so it's going to take a movement really from leaders in the game i would say i'm included in 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 that as well um it's easy for me to sit here and and say that we're not doing it right but come up come up with reasons why and solutions i'm i'd be i'd love to get behind a you know a movement to get more research out there and proof that we're we're not getting the best out of our players because we're expecting too much out of them in short periods of time. And you know, the answer probably, quite frankly, is to just back off with the amount of league games that you know we we have to have our players play at all the levels um, to give enough rest and recovery between between games. Um, but I mean, I, I I can recall moments at, at you know when I was the head coach at Saginaw Valley. Um, I remember one year. We got the schedule from the GLIAC and it was, I want to say we had seven games in 18 days and it was like, oh, well, that's pretty much, you know, three quarters of our season in 18 days. So we spend, you know, all year preparing and here we are with seven games in 18 days. It just, it seems like it's avoidable, but I'm I'm not in the trenches trying to figure out the scheduling. Um but I just wish we would spend more time discussing this topic because it's a big one to try to get the best out of our players, not only from a development perspective, but to protect them from a health perspective. You're talking about you'd, you'd be uh, into a, a movement for this sort of change. So in the, those halls of powers and the leadership in the sport, is there an appetite to change this? 
I, I, again, I think it's not, I don't think there's a real understanding of it, which is, you know, I think sometimes when you're trying to implement change, it, it, does it maybe come across like you're just disagreeing with how things are done and trying to point the finger that things aren't being done right. And that's not necessarily the way I would approach this. I, I think the way we would approach this mammoth topic would be to put some data together to show the wear and tear on the bodies um, from a health perspective and performance perspective and come up with an optimum approach to how we, how we, how we run our leagues and how we schedule. Um, you know, I, I just know that it's not an exact science. It's not a perfect science. You're always going to get, you're always going to have a situation where there's a complaint about the rest and recovery. You know, you get it at every level, like it's happening all the time. You know, I was just listening to, um, you know, serious uh, XM with the the football um, or the soccer uh, news on there talking about, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United rotating players in and out because of the wear and tear on the bodies. And, it, you know, it's the right thing to do, but the games come thick and fast. And the minute he loses a game or ties a game like he did against Everton, he's getting all kinds of, you know, uh, criticism for resting Ronaldo and you know so so it, it's easy to point the finger without a solution and I would never I would never say that I'm I'm here to do that by any stretch but it's certainly something that I think if if the leaders and, de- and decision makers were given more research and more information on this in fact this this topic I think it could in fact change the the uh, the future so that there's more restrictions on the amount of games that players are allowed to play in a short period of time. Yeah, I sure hope so. That would be excellent because it seems like uh, condensing everything into like three month segments seems, <laughs> yeah. uh, seems pretty tricky. seems pretty tricky to, to manage to do all that, get a whole season's worth in uh, just yeah. a few weeks. Um, before I let you go, uh, something more of like a, a fun, more of a personal question. You've seen a lot of soccer. You played a lot of soccer. Um, this might be difficult to narrow down of just the amount that you've uh, taken in, but what is the best goal that you've either done yourself or seen in person? What is your dream goal? The best goal that stands out to you in your time in the game? Right. Um, that's a really good question. I think from a playing perspective, um, you know, there's a couple of, couple of goals that stand out to me one one of them was um in the uh it was the round of the elite eight um for Oakland University we were playing away um uh, I, I I can't remember where it was it was um my goodness my, my memory fades me on that one but it was uh, it was in the quarterfinals of the NCAA playoffs and um I ended up scoring two goals that day and we won two nothing um and we went on to to the um, to the final four, where we ended up losing to to Tampa in the semi final. But I managed to score two goals, so it weren't the, it, it wasn't the fact that they were great goals. Um, I got one was a penalty actually, and one was a rebound. So they were they were very they were very nondescript goals, but they they stand out to me. Uh, also, as a player, when I played for the Detroit Neon, I remember um, Superman Andy Chapman hit a hit a shot on target, and it was going well. I say on target, it was going wide. And it was coming towards me and I had a player on my back. I remember letting it run through my front foot and then kind of flicking it with the inside of my heel and redirecting it. I remember that one. 
sticking out. And then I remember running to the corner thinking that there was some fans there and there was no fans. But um, then um, I'd say the, the best golf that I have seen would probably still be uh, the goal that Diego Maradona scored um, a long time ago now. Um, God rest his soul, but he scored... Uh, the, the the second goal that he scored against England in the World Cup quarterfinals 1986 at the Azteca Stadium. Um, he just scored the hand of God goal where he, where he used his hand to push the ball over our goalkeeper and they went 1-0 up. And then about five minutes later, he got the ball. You've probably seen it, but he, he did the famous Maradona turn in the middle of the field and he proceeded to beat like four or five English defenders um, and then rounded the keeper Peter Shilton and slotted it in the in the bottom corner. That that to this day I'm, I'm still like mesmerised by. So um, yeah, that would be it from a from a goal kick, goal scoring perspective. Yeah, that's definitely an unreal goal. Uh, I grew up at times in England myself, and that that goal's definitely burned into the uh, English soccer <laughs> psyche uh, for sure. Um, Andy Wagstaff. Uh, Liverpool Foot Club, uh, Football Club of Michigan, owner and president, and the head coach of the Flint City Bucks. Thank you so much for joining me here on Michigan Soccer Central. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. Of course, this is Michigan Soccer Central. Welcome back. Our next guest is one of the uh, main voices of coverage of this league that we have two teams for here in Michigan. The Michigan Stars and Detroit City Football Club both play in NISA, an abbreviation for National Independent Soccer Association. And my guest uh, hosts a podcast called The Knights Who Say Nisa, and produces a video highlight program called Nisa Now. Please welcome Dan Vaughn. Robert, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yes. So um, I guess I wanted to uh, elaborate our coverage of uh, Detroit and the Michigan Stars. They are Michigan's only professional soccer teams at the moment. Um, I guess as somebody who... Uh, covers Nisa more than anyone else I know. I wanted to get your perspective of just what this league is that uh, Detroit and the Stars are in. Well, I think that I, I will say that I think that we're still at a stage where we're not 100% sure what this league is just yet. Um, there are some fundamental principles about the league that you know, if it's about the idea of sort of independent clubs working together, the uh, general principle of promotion relegation, like those are ideas that Nisa's, you know, really pushed forward. Now, what that will mean in the future, we'll see. But for now, it's um, it's a D3 league and it's rapidly expanding. Uh, word on the street, that there'll be five more clubs um, next season. Um, and uh, no, cancel that. I said next season, next year, excuse me. Um, couple more coming in uh, next season. So there's there's a lot going on. Uh, certainly it's it's rapidly expanding, but currently uh, Detroit City is the top of the uh, table and has been for quite a while now. 
Yes, they just uh, were defeated for the first time in just about a year the other week. Um, (laughs) Obviously, in their niche in Detroit, very, very popular um, amongst their fans. Um, And there was actually one of the things that made me uh, feel the the need to reach out was uh, Detroit City FC owner uh, Sean Mann was on a podcast of one of the local beat writers for one of the big local newspapers. And they were almost apologizing about, um, you know, n- not covering them in a thorough way. There's plenty of like game day features here and there, but there's no beat writer, or anything uh, going to Detroit. And they're arguably the um, biggest name in the league. Um, do you think that, uh, um, I guess you're the one covering. Is there other voices covering outside of uh, your website? Well, there there was a feature that showed up in Sports Illustrated, I guess, last week, which is pretty awesome. That's a pretty you know significant coverage. It is one of those articles that you're going to see once every couple of years about Detroit City uh, because Detroit City doesn't get enough coverage right now in national outlets. You know, they get mentioned. Uh, because of the reputation of of the supporters group and the excellence on the field, uh, but the reality is, yes, absolutely. There's not daily coverage um, outside of uh, the protagonist soccer outlets and you know the Knights who say Nisa, which is part of our podcast family. I mean, not really. They don't get enough coverage. This is an organization that just exudes excellence in almost every way. Has built their organization from the ground up has like worked to carefully expand uh, when other clubs maybe felt the need to, you know, retract and pull in when COVID happened. uh, Detroit city was prepared and weathered it fairly well. Um, And it's an organization that is um, the envy of, I'm sure most USL sides, uh, I am sure, I'm sure in NISA, uh, but it is definitely the case that they are an organization that are exemplary and the model for how lower league soccer should grow in the United States. It's just patient growth, building on top of each season, expanding your operations, getting the operations right and then building the team on the field to match that excellence. And boy, they've got a great team and it shows in the results. Uh, going back to the league in general, you're saying mm-hmm. that it's predicated on, you know, slow natural growth. Will the environment that we're in give them time to do that? It's a great question. I, right now in NISA, Detroit City is the big fish in the small pond. And that is an interesting position for them to be in, regardless of what the supporters might say about them. They have in the NPSL, uh, they did not always have the greatest success on the field. They were a very effective club in how they ran their operations. But the reality is they did not win any championships until NPSL Pro, which some people count, some people don't. But regardless, if I was a fan of Detroit City, I would count it. Uh, but never had any of that success on the field uh, to the level to live up to the excellence in operations and excellence in support. So it's interesting. They're in a different role now. Now they are the sort of, they're the tent pole that's holding this tent up right now. If Nisa doesn't have Detroit city right now, I think it's a very different look. And because of that, I think there's a lot of pressure on Detroit city to one play well, but two to draw well and to influence um, other clubs into drawing well. So I I think that there is a, you know, 
we saw on Sports Center, right? Um, the 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 bicycle kick that that made um, Sports Center coverage. That is the kind of thing that a brand new club desperately needs, right? It's the opportunity to get your brand and uh, your league, your players, your teams in front of a national audience that's not, you know, streaming, right? So that's a big deal. And Detroit City is the kind of club that can supply that. So right now, they're absolutely vital to this. It'll be interesting to see. So far, so good, right, for Detroit City. It'll be interesting to see if other clubs can start building up to their level, we haven't seen that yet. Uh, but, but I think that there are some promising clubs that are showing um, a desire to do better and a desire to play well and be competitive. Uh, the question is, is how do you deliver that game day experience, that excellence that Detroit city is so good at doing and has worked very hard to build that. How do you do that again? Because, you know, Detroit city has had an eight, nine year ramp here and has climbed that as they've gone. Most of the clubs in NISA are a season old, two seasons old. There are a couple of exceptions to that, but the reality is the vast majority of this league is brand new, so expecting them to be at that level is probably not realistic, but having a club like Detroit City can offer the example, the model on how to get there. Well, here in Michigan, since uh, the success of DCFC over the last 10 years, there's been a wildfire of uh, DIY grassroots team pop up all over the state. So uh, do you think maybe that paves the way in a, in a more of a national sense at this professional level? Well, I think that, I think what you're saying is that like, can DIY be successful at this level? I think that's true. And I also think that yes, absolutely. The influence sort of the gravity of Detroit City has, I think, will affect the rest of the state and the area in how clubs are put together. We've seen grassroots leagues pop up in the area. We're seeing a lot of grassroots clubs sort of on the rise now. I think that's a good sign of, of a healthy soccer environment and having the model, the example right there on how to do it. You talked about tent poles in Detroit on the field, and I guess as an organization, you know, holding it up while there's essentially 75% of the league are expansion teams. Mm -hmm. um, financially, though, you guys had a feature on your website on protagonistsoccer.com about uh, the team that Detroit City played at midweek and the Detroit stars played at home over the past weekend, uh, new Amsterdam who I believe, um, has some, uh, ownership stakes or at least, uh, an investment in the league. And I know, uh, the other local team here, um, zoner, you know, has a significant, um, stake or financial investment in the league itself. How does that, you know, uh, jive with you that there's so many financial incentives within the you know like the club ownerships so i'll be transparent in saying it's not optimal um and certainly is not the way i'd like the league to be started but let's be 100 percent you know transparent most leagues start with some clubs that shouldn't be there or some clubs that are on shaky weird situations. So I think that like expecting NISA to be where MLS is or where USL is right now is pretty unrealistic. I think that we have some clubs that have some conflicts. There's some conflicts there, right? The fact that, you know, New Amsterdam's owner, Lawrence Gerard, his wife owns uh, Chicago House AC. That's 
a weird conflict. It's not something that you would like to see optimally, particularly in a league that sort of prides itself on independence. I understand that. And I think that's a fair criticism. And I, 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 I'm not avoiding that, but I also think that there were times in MLS's founding when multiple clubs were owned by a single person or a single ownership group. And honestly, like as you have moved forward, that's continued. Right. So I, I think that like, we, we need to be realistic about what we expect. Money is not, does not grow on trees and talking people with money into spending money on soccer is not the easiest um, sell. It's never been. It's why soccer is not, hasn't been that successful in the United States. So I think that we're at the very beginning how does this shape out as we move forward? That remains to be seen. I, I don't think, um, I don't think it's optimal, um, and I do think that there are us- other issues at New Amsterdam. I think you were hinting at that, but certainly there are other issues there um, with the owner inserting himself into the lineup, which. You know, I, I have argued that the league should should pass a, a bylaw saying that you can't do that. But then someone says, well, well, what about like the example in uh, in Phoenix in the USL where Didier Drogba was playing? Like and he was obviously very at still at the height, of, not the height, but certainly still able to play well in that league. That And that, that's a hard thing to argue with. I still say for the sake of the league and for the sake of the purity of the game, you just pass that rule. That Just make that rule. That is what it is. Um Again, uh, it's not it's it's an imperfect system right now. Uh, I I tend to try to focus in our coverage on the things that are going right, but I also try to be honest. And if I see things that should be called out, we do our best to do them fairly and make sure that we can substantiate the things that we can substantiate. Uh, I I know that there are more rumors swirling around about that particular organization and even other organizations. Uh, if I don't have proof of something, we don't run with it. Um, and there are other journalists that choose to do things differently. Um, and I don't support that approach. Uh, I think that you should always be able to back up what you've got. And if you can't, if it's, I heard about this one time from somebody, that's not good enough. Um, there has to be some journalistic integrity in the way you cover the league. It's what's fair. It's what's right. And to me, it's what sets journalists apart from, you know, rumor, rumor spreaders or whatever the word is you want to use. Yeah, and that's a a fine line and a, a line that's really uh, smeared and smudged these days and almost <laughs> non-existent. So I, I like to hear that from you. And it's actually a poignant moment for um, journalism or in sports investigative journalism with all the news that came out uh, late in the sure. week last week yeah. and then over the weekend with uh, the... Um, abuse allegations and retirements and ever all sorts of people coming out of the woodwork uh, to support the women um, in the NWSL. Um, and that kind of all came about, you know, within what, two years of there being, you know, for the first time uh, Meg Linehan and a couple others, the first time there's ever Absolutely. really been full-time journalists in that realm uh, and look at, you know, they cracked a case. Yeah. I, I think you're so right. And I think that it, 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 it begs the question, what would we see if we had more people covering the sport with journalistic integrity and like a dogged determination to find the truth? That is, it's so important. And when we let organizations slide, even the organizations that we like, if we let them slide, 
we are setting up for situations like this when there are evil people in organizations who allegedly I'll, I'll say it's alleged so far, but I have heard and and certainly the reading, the, the reading of that information looked very convincing to me as a reader, but you know how the organizations judge that is up to them. But I'll, but I'll say that, that if you don't have a Meg Linehan, if you don't have the athletic or other organizations putting focus on these leagues, things like this happen because there's an expectation that you can get away with it. I I would argue that every league needs critical journalists looking at what they're doing. It doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that you're trying to blow the league up or kill the league or, you know, get people fired, quote unquote. Like instead it's about what's honestly happening and what should the public know about this and how can we make this thing right? Whatever that thing is. Um, I'm, I'm currently working on a story right now about, about Nisa that it's, it's, it's not to that extent, but there is an issue and I'm trying to get to the bottom of it. And until I have the facts, I will continue to do my job and keep digging. And if I can't find the facts, then it's going to go in the folder of that's a story that I wish I could have run, but I don't have, the, I don't have the, the information to back it up. And so I'm going to continue to do the work that I can to find the truth and uncover it. And you're right. Not everyone takes that approach. And particularly in amateur journalism, there is a desire for clicks, desire for follows. And I understand that. And certainly I understand that. But, like, <laughs> You'd I, never, I, Dan. You'd never. <laughs> but, but like, I, I get the appeal and I get the desire to get people to follow you. I 100%. I, I check my follows all the time. But I think that if you make the decision to be a journalist, that does not mean that I am paid or unpaid. It means the approach that I'm taking to the work that I'm doing. And I'm going to do that. Me personally, I will do that the right way. And anyone under the protagonist soccer handle or a podcast that we are that we are carrying will do it to that same extent because the expectation of myself, the editor and founder, and I expect that of the people that work with me and of myself. Well, it's well appreciated. And I'll, 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 take, I'll take a quick pivot in... Um, we got serious stuff under under our belts. What's <laughs> been your uh, favorite thing of uh, Nisa in this uh, short history of theirs? Wow, the fa- my favorite thing. You know, <laughs> I think that the interactions that I see online have been my favorite. You know, the rise of Mama Stump, um, the social media manager for Stump Town. You know, the internet personalities and and even those associated with NGS, people like Taco and and Dion and and like those are people that I've gotten to know covering the sport. You know, I think of Jim out of uh, Chattanooga. I guess he was Chattagooner. I'm not sure if he still is. I think he is. Um, But getting to meet people like that is the best part of this league. Like the connective tissues that sort of stretch across the country, across a a league that's up and coming and meeting people with like hopes and dreams for their team or for their league, for their players. And like, that's, that's a, that's what we love about soccer. That's the thing that we enjoy. It's like every season is new, right? Every match that people play Detroit city, they think they're going to be the one to knock them off. They're probably not. Um, But that, that is like, that's like part of why this league is so fun and watching you know, these sort of internet personalities pop up on Twitter and sort of become who they are. I think it's, 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 it's one of my favorite parts because I'm on Twitter a lot. I run, 
uh, too many Twitter handles right now. <laughs> um, no burners. Uh, every, I think everyone's aware of the ones I run, but uh, I try to uh, interact with people as I can. But I am a, a very active member of uh, social media when it comes to NISA and soccer in general. And I want to I be involved in getting to meet people that are also passionate about the sport has been my favorite thing. Absolutely. Uh, one of uh, the interviews you did recently that I enjoyed the most was uh, your interview with our uh, local Detroit sportscaster and the DCSC uh, play-by-play guy, Neil Rule. Oh, yeah. I really like him. Um, got to meet him in brief a couple times. But um, one thing he's really good at is when I was listening to that, he's almost like a, a friend in a way if you mm-hmm. uh, listen to enough of his games over a while. But there was one thing that I was actually surprised I disagreed with him on was uh, Nisa's uh, entrance into the Chicago market. That actually really surprised me and blew me away. I like just about uh, all the things that Peter Wilt's, uh, you know, gotten behind. Mm-hmm. But the Chicago Fire are the sixth or seventh most popular team in Chicago. And then <laughs> now we're going to add another team that's going to play in the old stadium of the team who is not doing very well. I was all behind it. I loved how they did their naming. But once they said that they were going to seat Geek uh, Stadium, uh, the former home of uh, the Chicago Fire, I went, whoa! <laughs> um, what's your take on uh, Chicago? That's kind of like the uh, quote-unquote uh, local rival for Detroit teams sure. and Chicago teams. I I think that they're there have been some missteps made. I, I agree with you that I tend to trust Peter Wilt. I think he's done this enough that he probably knows better than we all do. Um, however, uh, I think there were some missteps. Uh, I, unlike, unlike you, I, I didn't love the naming. Um, I felt like there were better options and naming yourself after a music genre is complicated. It reminds, <laughs> it reminds, it reminds me very much of like MLS 1.0, um, it, it reminds me of Chicago fire. That's a weird name for a club. Like, why are you named that? That's, that's weird. That's um, funny. I never questioned that, but well, go on. Well, they've been around long enough that maybe they're accepted as part of the landscape, but it, to me, there's some odd, odd naming conventions there. I, I thought that was odd. I felt like the, uh, the soccer kits that they released this year. And, and I know that there's logic behind it and there's a story behind it, but it was pretty disappointing, pretty underwhelming after a lot of plugging and they're selling it at a very high price point. Um, I agree with you that putting, you know, taking that stadium might've been a misstep. And, and, and there were before the season started, we talked about it several times on Nights Who Say Nisa, a, a great podcast, by the way. Um, <laughs> but we, we talked about several times what what it would look like if you underdrew when you have so many seats around you. And, you know, if you're in a, I don't know, a 5,000 seat stadium, you know, if you're if you're in a high school football stadium. Um, and you draw 900 or 1,000 fans, it doesn't look that bad. It, it's not great, but it doesn't look that bad. You put 900 fans in a 15,000 to 20,000 seat stadium. Now you have just a really unappealing look on camera. And so for any fan, even, even the fan experience there, uh, it's not optimal. So you know, do they stay in that stadium? Do they continue to play there? I don't know. Um, I, I just from the outside looking in, it doesn't look good. There's been a couple of missteps, but I also like like we started. 
I tend to believe in Peter Wilt. Um, he generally does things right. I've talked to him for probably five or six different articles at this point. And he is a very sincere, smart, passionate person who generally gets things right. And when he doesn't generally can accept the fact that he didn't get something right. So I would say, let's wait and see. It's a first season. They're struggling on the field, by the way, they're now in ninth place, not in 10th place. So congratulations to them. Not the bottom of the table. Uh, it's, it's a move. It's a small one, but it's a move, but it's one of those things that I, I'm sort of in a wait and see mode with them because I think that your first season, you have to give people permission to fail, um, on a lot of fronts, whenever you're first getting rolling again, expecting, you know, what we see out of say Chattanooga or Detroit city out of a club that's only existed for a single season, I think is an unfair bar that we're putting these people to. And if you look at the league, like, like we said, the majority are clubs like that clubs that have never played at this level and that don't have that track record of operational excellence that's required to be very successful at this level. So I say wait and see. It, it's uh, it's early, yes. I, I do think the stadium choosing was a bad idea, but but we'll see where they go from here. Yeah, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be negative. I guess just uh, optimistic yet critical is kind sure. of my stance mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, we're about halfway through the season. Uh, Detroit at the top. Um, it looked uh, for a moment mm-hmm. that next week's Detroit City FC versus Stars might be a near the top of the table clash. Um, Stars uh, lost uh, on Sunday, so it won't be um, battle for the top by any means. But uh, what do you want to see from the um, Michigan soccer rivalry? You know, I think what everyone wants that's not a fan of either of these clubs is for both of them to be good, right? And I think that like we can expect Detroit City to be excellent, but Michigan Stars have played pretty well this this season, better than we actually thought. Um, there was an expectation that they would sort of continue to slope, and they've they've added a lot of talent, and they're they're playing better. Um, are they consistent yet? No, they're not. But but we're seeing signs of life, and that's a good thing. I want to see Michigan Stars where they're at, maybe a little higher. Uh, currently, I think they're sitting fifth. Um, I'd like to see them continue to go to go up because this is a really good rival, right? Because it's it's more than just a style, a clash of conflict of, of style. It's more than uh, it's more than a, a clash between teams with long track record of playing each other. There's also like political ramifications. There's also very outspoken owner ramifications. Like there's like a lot of of, of like really interesting fun things going on here. And I say fun. Maybe that's the wrong word, but but interesting is probably a better word. But but fun for those of us that maybe don't have an active rooting interest in this. But it allows people to connect to this because there's this level of of and and I don't want to be unfair to the stars, but good versus evil, or you know, built differently versus built you know um, in a more I don't know uh, throwing money around. I, I think there's just there's a lot of interesting. Uh, differences between these two clubs and what's great to see the Michigan stars have added a lot of talent this year and look better. That's a good thing. Like that's a good thing for this league. We don't want uh, as fans of this league. I, I, and I am a fan of this league. I don't want any team to suck all the time. Like that's a bad look. You should never have nothing but 
you know, you, you should never always expect to win every single match that you play. Like you want matches to be challenging. You want good teams to, to rise. You want mediocre teams to get better and you want the worst teams to improve over time. Uh, the fact that the stars are mid table, that's a good thing. Uh, and I want that to continue. It's, it's, it's better. It's better for fans. I would honestly say it's probably better. Even if you're a Detroit city fan, it's better for you too, because this is, you want to see challenging games. You want to see your team pressed. Now you also want to see your team win, but it's fun to play a good team and beat them. It's, it sucks whenever you win every match six to one. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Well, for some, and then for those of you like you who want to to, to have it interesting uh, th- till the end of the uh, league right. season. So, I mean, I'm probably uh, going to challenge domestic bliss and do anything that I can to get down to Hamtramck for uh, Detroit City versus the Stars. I know that. Uh, when sure. are you going to get out here, Dan? <laughs> well, one of the blessings and curses of modern technology is that um, an organization like Protagonist can basically be spread across the country and technology can make all of us connect with each other easily. So I'm, I'm, my, I live my home. I live in El Paso, Texas. That is a far a far drive um, from there. And, you know, the rest of my organization, we have people in California, we have people in Oregon, uh, we have people in uh, the New England area, even though we joke about that, but New Jersey and uh, Maryland. And so because of that, uh, it is a challenge to get oftentimes to get to these places uh, in person. Um, There've been talks of it. I would expect um, I have goals for next year for for protagonists to have a presence uh, for a Detroit City match, and and who knows, maybe even a, a going a championship match. Who knows? Who knows what we'll see next season? Yeah, that championship, uh, the spring championship match uh, was uh, quite quite a quite an awesome night. Um, it was almost like a homecoming. Uh, sure, there was like a a year without seeing a whole bunch of people, and just hey hey hey, you know, not not planning on running into anyone. Nice, you know, you know, faces from like every corner of life, you know, beyond soccer too. And it was at a point in like late June when uh, we thought we were in the clear with all this business. But what are you going to ask? No, I was going to say like that's what we love about soccer, right? It's the connective tissues around the game. The game is fun to watch, and that becomes a unifying focal point. But the reality is, those friendships we build, the joint interests that we share. Even the beers or the drinks that you drink with people, that's part of what makes the sport fun and enjoyable for everyone. And uh, without a doubt, I totally agree with you. We're not out of the woods yet on COVID. Thankfully, because of you know modern medicine, we're making strides. Um, and I think you people can be careful and 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 enjoy soccer live carefully. Uh, but certainly, we're not out of the woods yet. So I I, I think that the some of the numbers that we still see as lower than normal across the league, I think will come up more as we get this thing beat back. But who knows? There's a lot of really ignorant people in this country. Oh yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And even Detroit has uh, seen a dip. The last couple of games have been under 4,000 and I don't think they've been under 4,000 in a while, but in all fairness, this is the first time they've had a fall. So <laughs> Detroit, you know, like they're probably the, the, them and Chattanooga, the long established teams, but fall seasons are even new for them. So, yeah. um, that, I that's mean, a very good call out. That's a great call out. Yeah, absolutely. And this is again, something that we're seeing some changes and this is a different league from what 
long-term Detroit City fans have seen. I mean, basically the MPSL, you played a couple of months in the spring and that was it. Yeah, and a lot of that, you know, obviously with the players, but I think the a significant portion of um, those in the stands were, um, you know, college age folks mm-hmm. who, you know, you know, get other obligations or move somewhere else at that time of the year. There you so, go. You know, there you go. There's a lot of <laughs> a lot of new things. It's all very new. We're, they're paving the way for future uh, independent soccer, I hope. I hope so. Um, so, like I said, we're halfway through the season, uh, going through to the end of the no- November in NISA, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, um, I think the matches. I was I was actually looking at that before we got started. Run through. Um, I I think the final regular season match November twenty first. Okay, so we we still have a healthy amount left. Maybe someone will uh, give a legitimate <laughs> pursuit to Detroit City FC. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, let us know more about uh, where we can find your uh, NISA coverage and everything else on your website. Absolutely. So um, our website is protagonistsoccer.com. That's the hub. That's where everything is. Uh, outside of that, we have several podcasts. If you search for Protagonist Podcast on Basically, anywhere you get uh, podcasts, we're probably there. Um, if we're not, shoot me a shoot me a text. I'll see if I can fix that. Uh, but Night to Say Nisa is our dedicated um, Nisa coverage uh, podcast. We run two episodes a week. Uh, we typically do a, a recap show on Monday night and then a guest show on Thursday night. But our goal is to really have those two shows out a week. And then, yeah, Nisa Now, which is on the Protagonist Soccer uh, YouTube channel, that comes out uh, usually Monday or Tuesday of of match weeks, uh, sort of as a quick fire recap of all the matches, sort of get you caught up, but in visual format. We chop things up on uh, YouTube. So, that is where you can find us all. And yes, of course, at protagonist USA on, on Twitter or, or, or night Nisa or at soccer barista. There's a thousand Twitter handles. I'm, I'm all of them. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm really looking forward to, uh, what you have, uh, to put out there, uh, written, recorded, or otherwise with our Detroit city versus stars game next weekend. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Soccer Central. Okay, listener, Robert Kurt and Jenny Hajnaki back with you to wrap up this episode of Michigan Soccer Central. And we just listened to a couple, uh, in my opinion, a really uh, thoughtful and insightful interviews. First, we listened to Andy Wagstaff of the Bucks and the LFC Academy, who I will add a note uh, after we recorded. He did um make note that they are in communications with uh the Liverpool club itself multiple times a week and they share a curriculum cuz I'm not sure um if we touched on that in the recording just uh and added a note for there and also Dan Vaughn from the Knights who say Nisa and the uh protagonist soccer website what did you have uh to add to uh those conversations Jenny I'll- First of all, with, with Dan, I just want to say the, the the amount of work he puts into protagonist and the Knights who say Nisa is it's amazing. I mean, I'm just trying to follow like Nisa isn't always the easiest league to follow if you don't know where you're going. But the fact that he follows grassroots soccer all around the country is just fantastic. Someone someone needs to do it. And he's he's, you know, doing the Lord's work as far as I'm <laughs> concerned for anyone inter- interested in grassroots soccer. So. That's off to Dan Vaughn. Uh, second of all, I mean, his thoughts on, on Nisa are the, in general are rather interesting. And in where 
I, I mostly agree with him in a lot of ways. And I, I kind of share a little bit of skepticism about Nisa just as a, as a, a plan for a league in general, if that makes sense at all. I mean, I, I remember when um, it was originally uh, announced by former Chicago fire executive and uh, uh, NASL USL guy, Peter Wolf was, is it Peter Wilf? Wilt. If I'm saying Wilt, yes. Peter Wilt originally announced that. And as I followed the story, it's like, I, I, I don't think this league's ever going to kick off. It just, it feels like it's being kind of hodgepodge together and all that and everything. And the, they've done this whole, uh, they, they managed to get it off the ground is pretty impressive. I, I still question it's kind of long-term viability of it, but I'm also trying to not judge it too quickly. And Dan Vaughn kind of, I wouldn't say talk me off a ledge there, <laughs> but he, he kind of was like, he, he kind of they added some patience to me because I sometimes wonder, it's like he, we, they're specifically talking about, or you two talked about New Amsterdam FC. It's like, that's one of those clubs. Like, how does this club stay in business sometimes? It looks like they don't have any fans and all that. It's kind of a similar scenario with, uh, with like Michigan stars. I mean, I, I would love to get more people out to those games because I want all these teams to succeed, but sometimes I'm not entirely sure how they do, if that makes sense. Well, I do think, well, it's, it's fair. It's totally fair. Cause at the moment it is not, a perfect situation, clearly, but right, they kind of got screwed over by things beyond their control. Yes, yes, things would have been uh, more uh, in motion had it not been for uh, <laughs> the ridiculous two years that we've we've had put uh, on our plates. And I think that the long term vision and idealism is awesome. Independent teams forming a network across the country, great. But will the realities? Um, allow for that sort of patience for that to all get built up and filled in. Right. And uh, not to, uh, I'm going to kind of bring the USL into this a little bit. The, the USL is kind of in a, in a moment of uh, transition as well as they're going to basically lose all of the uh, MLS reserve teams after this season. And I feel like there's a, there's some room for cooperation despite the somewhat competing visions of the USL and NISA for these two leagues to kind of, merge together compromise between the overly the not overly but extremely independent nature of nisa and the franchise model of the usl and i feel like those two leagues could be stronger together than they are competing with each other yeah without a doubt but i mean that goes from the top you know uh mm -hmm. if there was clear guidance and fair guidance and a set structure that you know put everybody in their place and so clubs only had to worry about their clubs. They didn't have to worry about league building a league to then, you know, have a home for their club. I believe it was a conversation I had with Sean Mann at the beginning of the summer that said, imagine how much club building we would all have done if we weren't trying to build leagues all the time. Yeah, exactly. If we could kind of get a, a stable system and I, I not to get too macro here, but I feel like that's where U.S. soccer can come in and, and kind of kind of take a little bit of control and, you know, be a, a governing body over these, you know, this hodgepodge of competing leagues and actually kind of create a system. I know you're not going to get promotion and relegation at least as awesome as it would be to have that I, I know how unrealistic it is, but I feel like there, there kind of needs to be some guidance from the top that can help, you know, get all these leagues on the same page and try to find out a, a way to balance the wants and needs of the, the billionaires in MLS, the multimillionaires in the USL and the, um, 
the gritty entrepreneurs of NISA and USL League One. I, I feel like there is room for cooperation here. It just everyone needs to kind of set aside their hardline visions and uh, talk about what what they have in common and where they can forge a common ground and therefore strengthen the entire league system and by extension every single club within it. In my mind, this all stems um, back to what is it the uh, when they had the USSF presidential elections that were a big yes. deal because it was following the failure to qualify. So, I mean, I know I learned a lot about the whole structure of uh, power at the very top and the executive wing of USSF, and it seemed like that was the time to send to set up like a 10, 20 year plan for something constructive to work against. I know there's the the argument that, you know, at the top of the MLS level, they are, you know, heavily, heavily invested. Lots of people spend mm-hmm. lots of money. But if there was 10 years to litigate and to crunch all those numbers and to hop over those hurdles, I don't think that I don't think given the amount of time and uh, like a like a date, a landing date, that's like, you know, long, medium to long term. I, I mean, we can get anything done. Would in England would they have been like, well, we've been doing this for twenty five years. We'll just let it go. I mean, yeah, that investment. Yes, respect the investment, no doubt. I mean, I went and saw Columbus's uh, new stadium. I went to the Campeones Cup last week, Ooh. and that brand new stadium. I I, I, I was intoxicated by. It. I was like, wow, how it unbelievable! On TV, I can tell you that. How unbelievable would that to, be, to have that? But at the same time. It's like that investment for those, like uh, not to, you know, minimize that money in, but if there is a, they can, they can litigate anything, right? And given an amount of time to go through all that process, I believe they could open up that, that trap door at the bottom. And if there was firm leadership could set up a structure. And if it's, I mean, the, the counter argument is a bit of a falsity, like, were we going to, you know play MLS teams versus teams playing in high school stadiums like next year? No. Like, like I said, no. if you give a runway and you set up a time frame and a clear structure and you can work out those legalities and maybe some compensation for teams that, you know, invested in different ways at different times. But even those investors, like are the, the teams that bought expansions back in the late aughts, like the Vancouver's and the Philadelphia unions and those types, their investment wasn't nearly what the investment was in the, the expansion teams in the last like three years. I mean, those, those dwarf each other. So, I mean, times are changing and you can't be a prisoner of the moment. That seems like a, a false narrative to say we can't just do it overnight. But if there was clear leadership that wasn't trying to own the sport in its entirety, um, I think anything can be done. Right, yeah, and you kind of, you kind of just you summed up basically everything else I had to say about that right there. So you, you need, and, and and I guess to add add a little bit to it, there's got to be a way that you can like share resources between you know the rich kids in MLS and the the more upstarts down lower down the pyramid to kind of allow that investment to be possible because you don't want to have high school stadiums at upper level professional soccer. You want ideally you'd want every single team to have their own facility of varying size. So I feel like you can you can get that done. It's just a matter of getting billionaires to part with their money, and that's kind of hard to do in any society. I hear the natives getting restless, so I'll ask you the question. One of the main questions I want yes, to ask yes, you, having you, you on, is that you've behind the booth, you've taken calls, you've been a producer at the local mainstream radio 
station for sports here in yes. Metro Detroit. How uh, do soccer conversations, if anyone calls in for a soccer topic, or does anyone ever pitch it, or what would it take to get a topic of soccer onto the airwaves at your station? It's it's happened before, and it usually happens around like big milestone moments for Detroit City FC. It's where uh, you'll see like that they when uh, they made the national semifinal in the uh, the NPSL. It, uh, uh, several years ago that kind of brought up a little bit of topics when they first moved to Keyworth stadium and started setting those, you know, record 7,000, 8,000 people per game. That's when it, it kind of pumped in, but it's not necessarily, they're not talking about the, the games themselves, the outlook of the team. They're talking about, can this work? Can, can there be a professional soccer team in the, um, in this Detroit area? And it's, it's sort of interesting because you get kind of your, your two, completely different camps you get the you get the you know the the diehards the detroit city fc fans and just soccer people in general that are like yes this can totally work and then on the exact opposite side of the spectrum you get the the people that don't really know anything or don't care about soccer or even worse are absolutely hostile to it that say no soccer is stupid we don't need it we've already got these other teams and all that and everything and i, I t- obviously i tend to sign more with the the first camp where i do believe professional soccer can and will work in this area it just it, and it needs to be kind of done the way detroit city's doing it they're, doing it they're they're doing it the way it should be done in my opinion it's why i became an investor in the team last summer uh and but it does as far as just conversation about the game as a whole it it unfortunately does not really happen i I, i'm one of a couple of soccer people that uh work on our production staff i'm i'm the biggest of those three or four people uh that i can you know go on like we got a, a big manchester city fan over there that i'll always banter with i mean you know his man city kicks my arsenal's ass all the time which kind of sucks, but I, I live with it. It creates for a fun little work atmosphere. But the problem is, like most of the, the it, it doesn't gain a lot of traction in terms of listener interaction and everything. So that's why it doesn't get a lot of airway air airplay on our station. I, I wish it got more. Uh, if I had a little more power, I could probably squeeze a little more in. Uh, but I try my best when I'm around to to kind of get that little soccer voice in there. I used to do shows every now and then I'd try to find a way to ramrod a soccer topic and it would get a few people to, you know, text in or anything like that. But as far as the mainstream Detroit sports fan that listens to sports radio, it's, it's not really much of a, a needle mover, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. I, I mean, I understand in general, I just wanted to get uh, the insider's perspective, oh, yeah. so to speak. Absolutely. And I'm always here to provide that for you. I really appreciate that. And thank you for everything you do to uh, get the show out there. Uh, Check out our uh, feed, Michigan Soccer Central, across all the platforms. And uh, keep a lookout. The Michigan Soccer Central website is sure to come later this year. Um, Be sure to send in your team of the week nominations you can send a dm to either we are soccer or michigan soccer central accounts and you uh your team will be discussed to be this week's michigan soccer central we are soccer team of the week again thank you jenny for everything that you do thank you to dan josh brooks for aiding in the information found in this podcast 
and to Dan Catranza for the music that you made for me so very long ago. So till next week, enjoy your soccer.